Uh, Mother's Day happens to fall uh, during a time that we're talking about uh, Endgame. Of course, Avengers Endgame is a, is a movie that's breaking all kinds of records, and, and we're using that title, Endgame, to talk about what the Bible says about the end of the world, and that's what we've been doing the last couple of weeks, and we'll do a couple more weeks, and so we're kind of getting caught right in there, and so we're, we're glad that you're with us as, as we jump in that, but sort of like what we saw in that video, there's two sides. Uh, we, we see peaceful motherhood, and then we see sometimes it, it's alarming, and, uh, and that's how it is with the second coming. Sometimes the Bible describes it as a sort of a peaceful and comforting event, and other times it's uh, alarming and deadly, and, and things are happening, and and, that, and I'm going to point that out today, and I want you to see that. But before we get there, the last couple of weeks, we've been laying a foundation, and we've been doing that in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the Bible that they had when Jesus was here 2,000 years ago. They had the Old Testament. That was the Hebrew Scriptures. And one of the prophets in there, there's a book called Daniel, and Daniel writes a lot about end times. As a matter of fact, what happened with Daniel is that God allowed him to understand some things that would happen in the future. The first thing was that Daniel understood that there was a, a, a succession of four world powers that would come one right after another that would control Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. And that started during Daniel's lifetime with the nation of Babylon. Then Babylon was overthrown by Medo-Persia, and then Medo-Persia was overthrown by Greece, which is named in Scripture before it happened, and then Greece was overthrown by Rome. And then after the Roman Empire, uh, it sort of morphs into a ten-league uh, nation, a ten-league um, union, which actually hasn't happened yet. And then after that, God's kingdom would come. So that's what Daniel saw, and all that happened in history, just as Daniel said it would. Then also Daniel was given a timetable for how it would map out till the coming of the Messiah that Israel had been waiting for. And that gets a little complicated because of the wording, but basically he found out, it was revealed to him that, that there would be 70 weeks, or more literally, there would be 70 sevens, that there would be 70 seven-year periods before the end. And then specifically, that there would be a time yet future in Daniel, so Daniel lives like 600 years before Jesus. And God reveals to him that, and the temple has been destroyed by the Babylonians, and Daniel saw that when he was young. Jerusalem taken, temple destroyed. And then God tells Daniel that there's going to be a decree to rebuild the temple. There's going to be a temple number two. And that when that happens, as soon as the decree to rebuild the temple happens, that you can count down 69 seven-year periods that happen concurrently 
or 69 times 7, which is 483 years, you could count down 483 years, and at the end of that 483rd year, the Messiah would be there in Israel, 69 weeks, 69 seven sevens, or 69 seven-year periods. And so all that happened, you could count that down from the decree from Cyrus that happened about 200 years after Daniel to the to the last week of Jesus' ministry was 483 years. Actually, all prophesied in the book of Daniel. And Daniel saw all that in the future. So that happens, and he wrote all that down about 600 years before Jesus came. So now, stop there. Daniel said all that, wrote it down, part of the Old Testament. Now, fast forward to the time when Jesus came on earth. So now the 683, the 483 years has happened. He's in Jerusalem. It's the last week of his three-year public ministry. It's just a few days before he's going to be crucified. And I want you to turn to Matthew 24 because... Um, this is Jesus talking about the end. Now, notice I said that there, we talked about 70 weeks, but I only covered 69 of them. All those weeks happened consecutively, but then there's a 70th week or a 70th seven-year period. And we call that the seven years of tribulation, or it's also called the day of the Lord, or it's also called the 70th week. So all that means this seven-year period that is still in the future at this time. And then Daniel told us what that would look like, what would start that, what would happen in the middle of that, and how that would end. And basically, Daniel said uh, that that would start with a, one, uh, with a world leader who would rise in prominence and sign a peace treaty with Israel. And when he signs the peace treaty, the seven years start ticking. And then we're told that in the middle of that seven-year period, three and a half years after the peace treaty is signed, that something happens called the abomination of desolation. And what that means is that three and a half years later, after the signing of that peace treaty, that same world leader goes into a temple that's built, that's not there yet, which will be the third temple, goes into the temple and sort of proclaims himself to be God and that he should be worshipped. And then the next three and a half years is even worse trouble on earth called the Great Tribulation. And then immediately, Scripture says, after that second three and a half years, Jesus comes back to reign on earth. So you just have to know that as a background. That's all in Daniel. Now we're fast forwarding 600 years to the time of Christ. We've saw from that piece, the, about 200 years after Daniel that... Cyrus issues the decree, and they build another temple. And now, at about the time of Jesus' birth, there was a man named Herod the Great, and he greatly enhanced the temple. Solomon's temple, the first one was great. That's destroyed by Babylon. And then there's a decree for the remnant to come back, King Cyrus. They build a second temple, not as impressive. But then about 400 years later, about the time Jesus is born... 
Herod the Great reigns, and he greatly expands the Temple Mount, greatly expands the Temple, and it's very impressive. And now we're at the last week of Jesus' life, and here's, and here's what happens. Jesus is teaching in Jerusalem, and his disciples, as he's walking out of Jerusalem, they, they, they point out to Jesus, look at the temple. Look at all these buildings surrounding the temple. Isn't it impressive? And then Jesus says, there's going to be a time, this temple is going to be destroyed, and not one rock is going to be left standing on, an, on, on another. It's just going to be flattened, completely completely dismantled. And so, and then they walk out of Jerusalem, they cross the Kidron Valley, and they, they're on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples come. And so basically, it looks like this. The, the Mount of Olives is just across this valley where you see the trees, and this is how it looks today. But that's where the disciples were, and they're looking down on the temple. That's the Dome of the Rock, a, a Muslim shrine, and that's where the temple used to stand. Those are the walls of Jerusalem. They're looking, overlooking the temple, and Jesus is talking to them. And then they have questions. Kind of like moms. Moms, have you ever had questions from your child? You know, if you're ever driving along, and from the back seat, you're just peppered with questions. Hey, mom, what about this? What about that? Where did that come from? Where are we going? What's going on? You know, question. That's what's happening the disciples now have some time alone with Jesus as they're overlooking the temple, and they've already mentioned to Jesus how cool everything was. Jesus says, it's all going to be wiped out. And so they ask him a couple of key questions. They ask him, first of all, what, uh, what are the signs of your coming? They ask him, and when is this going to take place? And that's where I want to pick it up in Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. Here it is. By the way, that's page 985 in your Bible, if you're grabbing one on the chair back in front of you, 985. Matthew 24, 1. Jesus came out of the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And then he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So he says the temple's going to be destroyed. And, and by the way, I know this is a little confusing, so let me just take a minute. There's three temples that are mentioned in the Bible. Solomon's temple, it's destroyed by Babylon. Then Zerubbabel's temple, the decree, they go back and they rebuild the temple. That's the one that's there in the first century. And then Herod the Great, at about the birth of Christ, same guy, he's the one that greatly expanded and made the temple bigger. And Jesus says that temple is going down, which actually happened about 40 years after Jesus said this. In 70 AD, 40 years after the crucifixion of Jesus, there was a revolt by Jewish people. And Rome came in to crush the revolt. And a general named Titus marched in. He took Jerusalem, and then he destroyed the temple. They set fire to the temple. Well, the temple burned a little early, and there were a lot of golden artifacts in the temple that are described for us in the Old Testament. But those artifacts were still in there. And the temple fire happened, 
Well, then, because all that gold melted and it melted into the stones of the temple, the army and the people that were there started taking apart every block of the temple, every stone of the temple, to try to find some of that molten gold that would have went into the crevices of the temple. So it was completely flattened. The only thing that's left today is the, the, the retaining wall for the temple mount. But on top of the temple mount, not one stone was left on top of another, just as Jesus predicted. That happened 40 years later. That was the second temple that was destroyed in 70 AD. And then there's a third temple that's still future. The only thing we know about that is that it's there in the middle of this last seven-year period because there's the abomination desolation that happens. And then we speculate that, okay, well, there's no temple there now. Right now, Jerusalem, you know, you have the third most holy site to Muslims is on the same temple mount, the only place where the temple can be built. And so we speculate that somehow when that peace treaty is signed by this world leader, that somehow maybe in that treaty it allows the Jewish people to build their temple. Because what we know is three and a half years later, the temple is there. The third and last temple is present. And because then that same world leader violates that. So you with me on that? Okay, man, that was pretty good because a lot of stuff going on there. All right. And then in 70, after the temple was destroyed in 73 AD, a few years later, they finally completely crushed Rome finally completely crushed, and that happened at the fall of Masada. You might have heard of Masada as a huge stronghold. That finally fell about three. They had to lay siege to that. It fell like three years later, and then the people committed suicide up there after holding out for a long time. And then Israel stopped being a nation, and there was no Israel until 1948, after the Second World War. And then Israel didn't have Jerusalem until 1968. And so that's kind of what's going on with the temple and Jerusalem. But back to this. Now, Jesus answers three questions about the end game of the world that I want us to see. Two of them that the disciples ask, and he answers them in reverse order. And then he answers another question. He spends a lot of time answering a third question that they did not ask him. And so the questions he answers are, what are the signs of your coming, and when will all this happen? And so first question. What will be the sign, they're saying, because they're realizing the destruction of the temple, this has something to do with end times, doesn't it? Okay, God, okay, Jesus, when are you coming back? What will be the sign of your coming back, and when will that happen? And Jesus answers that in the next verse, verse 4 of Matthew 24. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will, hear, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened, for these things must take place, but that's not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved." 
This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And that's not the reader of Matthew, that's the reader of Daniel, he's saying. Then those who are in Judea, when this abomination desolation, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. We'll skip down to verse 21. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or, Behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. He's just saying, just like circling vultures, you're going to be able to see this. It's going to be obvious. Next verse. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. That's what Jesus said. Those all caps are quotes from the Old Testament that Jesus is quoting. And so, did you catch his answer? They asked, what are the signs of your return when you come back. And Jesus says, there's going to be some general things that happen. Wars, rumor of wars, famines, earthquakes. But there will be some specific signs of his return. For example, one of those is that the gospel would be preached to all nations. Even more than all nations, all people groups. And this is fast becoming a reality today. That's one sign. Two, Jesus says... This abomination of desolation is going to happen, which happens in the middle of that seven-year period that's still yet future. Where the world leader sets himself up to be worshipped, that is what the abomination of desolation is in the temple in Jerusalem when that happens. That has, that has to happen. Three, then Jesus says there will be, after that abomination of desolation, the second three and a half years, there will be even greater tribulation like never before or after. But finally, and Jesus says, this is the main point. He says, you want a sign for when I come back? He says, when I come back to rule on earth, everybody will know it. I will split the sky wide open, he's saying. And I will come on the clouds, and every nation will know. It will be, everybody will know. And so he's warning people. 
Because this happens all the time. You probably don't follow it, but there's always somebody around that says, or some religious leader that people talk about and say, I think he's Jesus. You know, David Koresh or Sun Young Moon, where people think, this is the second coming of Jesus. This is him. This is Jesus come back. And G Jesus is telling us, do never believe that. If somebody says, hey, Jesus has come. He's out there in the wilderness somewhere. Don't believe him. Or Jesus has come. He's teaching in this room. Come in here. Don't believe him. Because he says, when I come back, everybody will know. It won't be a secret. I will split the sky wide open, is what he's saying. So there he answers the signs of his coming. Now Jesus answers their first question. When will these things happen? And that's the, that's the question that we want to know. That, we want to know that answer. When is all this going to happen? We know our time's limited. When? You said you're coming back. When? It's been 2,000 years. When? 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 And Jesus answers beginning in verse 36. Here's what he says. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. So now Jesus gives the answer to the win. And the win is nobody knows. And he says not only will nobody know, people won't expect it. And then he draws a historical parallel from the days of Noah. And remember, God's judging the entire earth, the people of the earth. And Noah's building this ark. But it takes Noah decades to build this ark. And people are just like, yeah, whatever. And they just start ignoring him because it's decade after decade after decade. And they just go on with their life, you know, just normal life, marrying, you know, partying, celebrating, you know, stages of life or whatever. And then, boom, judgment comes. But they didn't expect it. That's what Jesus is saying. We don't know when. But now, notice something. The two answers that Jesus gave, they seem to contradict. Did, did anybody catch that tension? You know, on one hand, it's like, oh, this is going to happen, this, 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 and then, bam, he's coming back. We're going to know exactly when that happens. As a matter of fact, we could count it three and a half years right after this midpoint, boom, it's going to happen. And so we have all these signs. It's going to happen right in this logical order. But then Jesus says at another time, nobody knows when. Well, how can that be? We'll get back to that. But before I get to that, Jesus answers a third question, and he spends a long time doing it. And it's a question that they didn't even ask. And the third question is this, that he answers. is He spends a long time after he says this, telling them, explaining to them through a group of stories called parables, and he's explaining to them why he's telling them this at all. Why he's even talking about this. Why he's even trying to explain to them when he will return. That's the question that he answered. Why is he telling us about his return? And that starts in verse 42. He says this. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. 
For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. So Jesus is saying, he spends a more time explaining why he's telling them this than he did telling them, than answering their questions. And he's basically saying, hey, I'm, I'm telling you this for three reasons. First of all, that you would be alert, that you would be ready, because you know it's going to happen at any time, that you would be ready, that you would be expectant, knowing that it's going to happen anytime. And he tells some stories to illustrate that. Be ready, he's saying. It's the same thing maybe with, with, uh, with parents or moms. It's Mother's Day. So moms, do you remember the first time that you left your kids at home alone? You know, they've grown up a little bit. You know, maybe your oldest is 10 or 11, 12, something like that. And you got to run to the store or something. It's just going to, you're going to be back like in an hour. And then you leave. And then you lay down the riot act, right? Hey, none of, you, don't let anybody in the house. You know, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. I'll be back soon, you know. But you never know what the house is going to be like, right? And the kids, they know you're going to be back in an hour. That's why smart moms say they'll be back in an hour. They're actually going to be back in 30 minutes or whatever. Not that you lie. But, you know, you're trying to figure that out because you want to come back before anything's destroyed, and the kids are thinking, okay, we have an hour. And so they feel like they can do anything they want, but five minutes before that hour's up, they're going to clean everything up and look like they've not been doing anything. You know what I'm saying? You know, what must Jesus be thinking? Here's what he's telling us. Don't be like those children. He's saying, hey, don't think that I can come back at any time, but before I come back, you know, well, this is going to happen and this is going to So I'm going to know at least seven years before he comes back, so I don't have to really worry about it in the meantime. No, he's saying, don't do that. I can, I, it's not seven years. I can come back today or tomorrow, he's saying, after his death. I could come back at any time. He's not talking about his resurrection that happened three days later. He's talking about his coming back to rule and reign on the earth. And, and the, the disciples totally understood that. So one reason is that we would be ready. Then he tells some more stories that basically is telling us not only should we be ready, but we should live with a sense of urgency of purpose. That we need to not only be ready, we should be doing things in preparation for that return. Urgency of purpose, because we don't know when. To illustrate that, he, he told a story of the, of the talents. And, and a talent is just a, a monetary denomination, like a talent of silver, just a weight of silver. And he, this master leaves, and he has three servants, and he leaves each of them some money, and he says, hey, I'm going to be gone for quite a while, and so carry on business and take care of this. And he entrusts one with ten talents, and he entrusts another one with five talents. I don't know what was going on in the third one, but he entrusts the third guy with one talent. And then he leaves, and these guys start investing that money and working on it. At least the first two guys get. And then he comes back, and the first, he says, well, what do you have to show for, you know, for me? And the guy that he left 10 with says, here, I earned, 20, I earned another 10. I've doubled your money, 20 talents. He says, good job. And then he turns to the guy that he gave five to, and that guy says, I've doubled your money. Here's 10 talents back. And the master says, great job. But then he goes to the one, and that guy said, Wow, I was afraid I might lose it. It seemed a little risky, so I just buried it. 
And we read that and we're thinking, well, that, that seems kind of reasonable. You don't want to lose your master's money, but the master's not happy about that. The master says, bad job, and doesn't like it. And what Jesus is illustrating with that is he's saying, hey, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. We need to invest what God has given us. Anything we have is really owned by God. That we need to invest our resources into the kingdom because we have a limited time. Urgency of purpose. That's what he's telling us because you don't know how long you have left. And it's kind of like with husbands. You know, at the birth of your first child, you're waiting for the call, right? You're waiting for your wife to say, it's on. It's happening. And you know it's coming, and so you get ready. You've carved out a place in your home, and you've fixed that up, and you've bought a bunch, you, you purchased some, some baby paraphernalia, and you got a car seat, and you've figured out how to strap that thing into the seat, you know, and, and you're doing all this. And, but how many of you, even though you, you got a bunch of stuff, when you got the call, you still didn't feel like you were ready. Anybody? You know, it's like, whoa, it kind of catches you. Jesus is saying, hey, be ready. Not just be ready and alert, but be prepared. Get ready. Do things that make sense in light of your limited time. And then the third thing that he's saying besides be alert, be ready, that there's urgency of purpose, he's saying basically have joy and know that I'm coming back for you. And because of that, we can live with peace and joy. This is the peace-joy kind of side of the equation that we were talking about. And he says that a few days later, the disciples, the night before he's crucified, they go to the upper room in in Jerusalem, and they celebrate Passover, which was a Jewish holiday, and then Jesus turns it into something called communion that we celebrate today. And so he meets up there during their communion time, and then John tells us in John 14, beginning in verse 1, that Jesus says this. I want to read it for you. He says, do not let your heart, this is the peaceful part, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so Jesus knows he's getting ready to die, that he's going to die within 24 hours. And so as Jesus is, is doing this, as, as preparing his disciples, he's telling them, hey, be comforted. He's trying to comfort them. He's letting them know. He's saying, hey, I'm going to be gone, but after I leave, I'm going to go prepare a place for you in heaven. And if I go do that for my followers, rest assured that I'm coming back to, to get my followers and bring them in to their new place. That's what he's telling them. Now, again, notice the disconnect. On one hand... Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to come back and hear all these signs and there's going to be tribulation and people are going to die and people are going to betray each other and everybody's going to be hated because, they, because of my name and bad things are going to happen and then there's going to be this peace treaty and then this guy's going to set himself up to be worshipped and then things are going to get even worse and if you're in Judea at that time, just head for the mountains. Just get out of there because it's going to be terrible. And then after three and a half years of terrible then I'm coming back. So he says all that. On the other hand, he says, hey, be peaceful. Don't worry. 
I'm going to come and get you. How can those two things be true? I'm going to explain that next Sunday. Okay, so next Sunday I'm going to explain the logical reason both of those teachings from Jesus are perfectly true and consistent. So come back for next Sunday for that. But here's the deal. Some people are, are, are here on Mother's Day and you're like, Wow, I'm here because I'm kind of jazzed up. I mean, I know our time's limited, and I want to see what's going to happen, and I want to know the future, and we know all these things. Jesus said all these things, and they all came true. Jesus said he was going to die. He died. Jesus said he was coming back from the life. He came back from life. Jesus said this temple was not just going to be destroyed, that not one rock would be left standing on another. Forty years later, that's exactly what happened. And now Jesus is telling us what's going to happen at the end times. That's still a future, and I want to know all about that. And some of you are sitting here like going, whoa, what is all this stuff? Hey, I just came here because mom wanted me to come. You know, I didn't sign up for this. I don't have any of these questions. I mean, my question is, who's Jesus? You know, my question is, is he really God? How do we know that? Can we even trust what the Bible says? Those are my questions, which we can, and we can prove that, but that's another thing. You know, how do we know? Well, I want to talk to you for just a moment. Because the main thing that you need to hear is that there is a God, just like we've always suspected, everything we see didn't come from nothing. Order never comes from chaos. Information doesn't come from nowhere. DNA information doesn't spontaneously appear. There is a God who created us. He created us in his image, ability to reason and he loves us he loves us so much he doesn't force a relationship on us he he gave us all free will and because we all had the freedom to do what we wanted we all sort of did our own thing all of us and in doing that we all did things that God said were wrong because he's righteous and he told us what's right and wrong we've all done wrong every one of us you and me both We've all done wrong. And and there's a problem with that because Jesus is not only perfectly righteous, he's perfectly just, which means for perfect justice, which we don't experience now, but will experience in the future, for perfect justice to exist, wrong must be punished, which is a problem for us because we've all done wrong. All of us. And it's more serious than we think, God says. But God loves us anyway. God knows every bad thing about us, things that we don't even remember. He still loves us. And so he provided a way for us to be forgiven without violating God's righteousness or God's justice. And it was very costly. He allowed his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come 2,000 years ago, take on human flesh, live as a human being, and yet not sin. Fully God, fully man, but he lived 33 years and never did one thing wrong. The only perfect person to walk the planet. And at the end of his life, shortly after he was talking to his disciples, he voluntarily allowed himself to be tortured to death in order to pay 
for our individual personal sins. And so he offers forgiveness. It's free. It's grace. But the only way that we get it is through belief. Or another way to say belief is through trusting in Jesus alone. Trusting him. Believing in him. Having faith in him. That's what I'm talking about. So the way we get forgiven, the way it's offering, you don't have to work for it. You don't have to be good for it. You don't have to be part of a church for it. You don't have to go through a religious ritual. None of that. None of that will work. Simply faith or trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. That he is who he says he is, the son of God, and that he died to pay for your sin penalty and my sin penalty. And when we come to him like that, he promises that he will forgive us simply through faith. I go to the rec center just across the park over here a couple times a week. And a few years ago, I I met a guy named Jan. And Jan and I became friends with several other people. And one of the questions that I asked Jan after I had met him is, I asked him a question, somehow we got on the topic of death, and I said, well, Jan, when you die, and we're all going to die, what do you think's on the other side? And he really thought about that, and that led to about two years of questions. I mean, sometimes I'd go up there and like one time I remember I had missed a week and I, you know, I just couldn't get up there and I got up there and I started getting on a machine and he came up, he grabbed a, a step stool and he pulled that in front of my machine and sat down and he said, Kevin, where you been? And I said, well, I, I, you know, I wasn't able, I was out of town or something. He goes, I have some questions. <laughs> he started asking questions and he just asked questions for like two years. We talked about evolution and creation. We talked about all religions versus Christianity We talked about the Bible and how we could know it's authentic, all those things. And eventually, Jan became a believer. And he died suddenly just this last week. I preached his funeral yesterday. Nobody saw it coming. You see, our time is limited. It's limited that that we know Jesus can come back at any time, but that's been true for 2,000 years. But our time is also limited because we don't know that we have another day. We don't know. God has not promised. you. We don't deserve another day. You know, it's kind of like moms say, you know, they, they'll say, hey, I brought you into this world. I can take you out. <laughs> it, it, not, he's not promising any time for us. We have today to respond. And so before we continue with prophecy next week, and we answer that question, that tension I just brought up. And before I close my part, I just want to, to lead you in a prayer. I want to give you an opportunity to respond. Just because there's people here because of Mother's Day. So if everybody bow your heads, I'm going to tell you, if you are ready to put your trust in Jesus, if, if even though that's not been our main topic, but you kind of get it, you're, you're willing to humble yourself and admit that you've done wrong like we all have. And you've come to find out that Jesus loves you more than you ever realized so much he would die for you. Even if you were the only person on the planet, he would die for you. He loves you like that. And you're ready to trust him and him alone for your salvation. 
I'd like you to follow me in this prayer. It's just a way of expressing your newfound faith in him. And so put this in your own words. You don't have to say it out loud. God knows your every thought. I don't want to embarrass you in any way. Just bow your head and just express this to God. If you've never done this before, something like this in your own words. Father God, I thank you for loving me. And Lord, I understand that you created me and you've allowed me freedom, but I've misused that freedom. I've done things that are wrong. And I deserve punishment for those things from a righteous God. But God, you love me and you provided a way out through your son, Jesus, who was my substitute, paying for my penalty. And God, right now I'm putting my trust in what Jesus did on the cross and Jesus alone for my salvation. God, I want you to come into my life and help me to live it for you. In Christ's name, amen.